0: Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. We're in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, verse 24 through 29. I'm going to pray over the word real quick. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that you would anoint this time. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge this word as God breathed, as from your mouth. And as we attempt to understand it, to communicate it, we pray that you would step in the room. You would cut away anything out of our lives that you need to cut away. Lord, Jesus said that if he'd be lifted up, he'd draw all men unto himself. We pray that as we proclaim this word this morning, Holy Spirit, you would draw our hearts to Jesus. We love you more than life itself. You're so good to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Last week as we talked, I mentioned that it would be rather easy to rattle off many influential leaders over the past decades, the past centuries, who, who had no accountability and no fellowship and no relationship, maybe all the gifting in the world, but because of their lack of accountability who totally fell and I was thinking this week it's it's easy I mean if we go through the 80s it's really easy but I was thinking this week um, about one man in particular his name's John Alexander Dowie we don't talk about him much but he's this Pentecostal figure um Roberts Learden wrote about him in this God's Generals Gordon Lindsay the founder of CFNI, wrote i wrote his biography but he was born in 1847 he died in 1907 and it seems like seasons of his life were just marked with God's power, were just, um, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. It seems historically there were seasons of his life where God used him to heal a large amount of people, to see a large amount of people saved. John G. Lake's wife was healed under his ministry, the wife of a congressman, family member of Abraham Lincoln. And he was a prominent leader in this movement that was basically encouraging churches to believe all of the gospel and to pray for the sick as well as preach the gospel. He was born in Scotland. Um, His family moves to Australia in his teen years. They say that he read the Bible cover to cover at age six. I also read a profound book at the age of six. It's called One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. I read all that thing. His dad was a minister called to the ministry. He struggled with some kind of digestion issues. And and I think he was 13 and he believed that God would heal him. And he prayed that God would heal him. And God did heal him of this issue that he had on a daily basis. And he began this life of, I'm, I'm, I'm an evangelist and I'm called to pray for healing with the gift of healing. And he was charismatic, passionate. He ends up in Chicago and they say he prayed for thousands of people a week. They, uh. Interesting kind of strategy, they kind of sectioned off Chicago in little squares, and they had street preachers who were designated to every square, and they were kind of really covering the city. He was filling the largest auditorium in Chicago, six thousand people a week, something like that, but people who write about him say that he had like a bit of an itch for controversy. Um, He knew, for example, Mariah Woodworth Eder, who's another um, pretty profound leader um, in the early 1900s, but he seemed to always have something negative to say about her. Things got a little bit weird when he purchased 7,000 acres outside of Chicago, and he began to build a city that he called Zion. And you couldn't buy a lot in Zion. You could only lease a lot for a 1,000 years. It was kind of interesting. And and it was supposed to be this holy community and you weren't allowed to drink or smoke or eat pork. And they should have known that this wasn't of God the moment that that man said, you can't have bacon. They should have said, no, we ain't doing that. And he sets himself up as the sole leader. Again, I I think they say 6,000 people moved to this little community that he called Zion and then, uh, he, he would dress in like the high priestly garments. Have you ever seen pictures of priests and the high priest? He'd wear these big things and a hat. And someone told him that he was Elijah. People started prophesying to him that he was Elijah. And at first they said he was a little put off by that. But eventually he embraced the idea that he was the Elijah to come. And he pronounced himself as the first apostle. Learden says that he quit signing his name, John Alexander Dowie. And he started signing it, John Alexander the first apostle. And he prophesied to his followers that he was the first apostle of this new age and a renewed time in church, in, in time church. The problem was that he quickly ran out of money and the city was quickly going bankrupt. And he stood up to preach one morning and had a stroke and his health declined. And the ministry pushed him out as his health was declining. In history, he went down as a fraud. History, many in history call him an, an imposter. And in, I think in some ways he was. I think God used him in power. I think he let that power fuel his ego. I think he made claims that were beyond him. I think he forgot that all of ministry is really about the glory of Jesus. And all the prophecies of this renewed city and of him being the great Elijah to come. They never came to pass and it just left his followers disillusioned, confused, skeptical, and as we look at Daniel chapter 2 this morning, I wanted you to kind of remember that context that these people believed that Jerusalem was the holy city and that God was going to protect them. And they were plagued for, for decades with false prophecy, plagued with priests and, and prophets who said, God will never allow us to be conquered. Again, Jeremiah 6, 13, 14. Remember, Jeremiah's right before the life of Dan, Daniel, still alive as Daniel's alive. Um, and Jeremiah said this in chapter 6 of his prophecy. From prophet to priest, they all practice the deceit. They've dressed the wounds of my people with very little care, saying, peace, peace. Jeremiah says, there's no peace at all. These people, too, are disillusioned. They're tired. They're weary of the prophetic word that's come to the prophets and priests. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, don't despise prophecy, but test everything. Why does he say that? Because it's easy to start despising prophecy. It's easy to get tired of all the clamor. It's easy to get tired of all the false and deceptive, deceptive words that come up. And, and our hearts can grow tired. And But Paul says, don't despise it, but test it. Don't despise it, but also don't embrace everything. Test it. Discern. Submit it to... To leaders, and I think that's where the people of the Babylonian captivity were. I think they were despising prophecy. I think they were sick and tired of rambling prophets, words of blessing when, when they just watched the city that they said would never experience any kind of tragedy. They just watched the walls be torn down, the, the nobility dragged out and changed, and Solomon's temple, which history says was beautiful, torn to the ground. Don't, don't come to me with your rambling prophecies. I think they were tired. But here in our passage today, the whole Babylonian empire will be given a new prophetic word, but it will not come from the mouth of a rambling prophet. It'll come from the dream of a pagan king who is also very frustrated with false prophecy. He's ready to kill every Chaldean, every magician. Remember, he has this dream. And then he says, if you can't tell me the dream, I don't care if you can tell me you can interpret it. You just like to talk. If you can't tell me the dream, I'm going to tear all of you limb to limb and destroy your houses. He's also sick and tired of false prophecy. So the dream comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he issues this decree and no one can come up with anything except one lone Jewish man. And this word didn't come from any imagination of some spiritualist. But God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and then gave the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And even Nebuchadnezzar believes this dream is from God. Jeremiah again in. Chapter 23, verse 16 says, This is what the Lord of hosts says. Do not listen to the words of prophets who prophesy to you. They're filling you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. But here, this is, this is radically different. God miraculously saves Daniel from Nebuchadnezzar's grip, and then he supernaturally confirms this word. Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of our passage today, Chapter two, verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, great gifts, made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men. Again, even, even Nebuchadnezzar, skeptical Nebuchadnezzar is sure that this word is confirmed. God gave it to him in the night, gave it to Daniel, his chosen servant. didn't come from lying lips. It came directly from God to a man who had grown tired of their deceptive spirituality. And then God gave Daniel the dream to confirm it. And all the kingdom now knows that Daniel is the chief, chief prefect because of what he was able to do. And now all of the Babylonian captives, but not just the Babylonian captives, because remember Babylon is maybe the strongest empire we see in history, like covering the earth. Not just the Babylonian captives, but even um, all, all a lot of the known nations at this point, they all hear this word. This word is released. Why is Daniel the tree, chief prefect? Because Daniel's God, is, he's the only one who is able to interpret this dream. So your question then becomes: What is the dream? What was God trying to say specifically to Nebuchadnezzar? What was God trying to say specifically to the Babylonian captives, and byproduct to the entire world? Let's pick up in Daniel chapter two, verse twenty-four, verse through verse forty-nine. Therefore, Daniel went in to Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king the interpretation. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has has asked. That was a slap in their face for the record. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, thoughts came of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries may know to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Just as a side note, here Daniel say, this, this gift, this dream, this interpretation is not given to me because I have any special wisdom or power. It's a gift of God. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. The image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. He says, This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and in whose hand has given wherever they dwell the children of men, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall ru- rule over all the earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand that broke it into pieces with iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is true. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering, and incense, be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. The king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request like every good homeboy, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, over the fares of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So what's the word that God confirms, releases in the earth? First, many commentators suggest that what Nebuchadnezzar saw, this big statue, was actually an idol. I think there's good good. Good reason to believe that um, if you if you still have your Bible open and you just look at Daniel chapter 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And this is the story, we'll jump into it next week, where Nebuchadnezzar says that everyone in all the region must bow down before this image of gold. It seems, a lot of commentators say it seems like Nebuchadnezzar actually built what he saw. He just made the whole thing gold. I think this idea is consistent with the Tower of Babel, this we're going to build something up large and tall that declares our personal greatness. Some claim that Babel and Babylon are related, are the same. I don't know that there's enough historical record for that. And this is what we have. This is what this image is. It's a succession of empires led by arrogant and narcissistic leaders whose primary motive is to make the world know of their superiority. Their primary motive is to conquer all of the earth and prop themselves up and say, you serve me and you look at how great I am. It's an idol from every stretch of the imagination. They will show no mercy. They will destroy homes, tear apart families, all to exalt their name, all to erect this idol for the nations to pay homage to. So God shows Nebuchadnezzar this large towering idol but it's not only gold, it's heads gold, chest silver, the belly and thighs are bronze, and the legs of iron, feet metal with clay. And he, Daniel tells us that the head of gold represents Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon is something like 25 miles uh, south of Baghdad today. And there was, there's a saying that historians always say that there was more gold in Babylon than dust. Something like 200 temples in Babylon, 200 temples to false gods. Nebuchadnezzar's father was a conqueror. He attempts to um, kind of defeat the known world. And one author writes, Nebuchadnezzar had his own position as great king to establish and maintain. And he set out to do this as the Mesopotamian kings had done for 2,000 years. He started to build. His own inscriptions record the restoration and addition of temple after temple in Babylon itself. Babylon was the home of the god, the god Marduk. And Nebuchadnezzar's devotion to Marduk was a celebration of Babylonian triumph. So what the culture understood is that as Nebuchadnezzar conquered the world, Marduk was triumphing. He was receiving glory. And the people of God lived for years under this impression. In, what's that word? Oppression. Impression. They had, they had some impressions. We'll talk about that later. Oppression. For years they, they lived under oppression. For years they sat remembering the great temple of solomon and thinking why in the world is god allowing babylon to slaughter us and why in the world is this city that's filled with false idols and why in the world are they thriving why are they successful and when god are you going to exalt us when god are you going to deliver us from this and god tells the people through this dream and the confirmation of it, that there will be a season when the gold head will seem to triumph, but be still, there is a rock that is not cut with human hands that one day will be hurled from God's mountain to remove every trace of this oppressor. What's God's message to the Babylonian captives? There's a rock coming and it will not be cut with human hands. Then it says that as you move to the, from the head to the chest and arms. Um, interpreters as always say that this is the Medes and the Persians. It's the next empire we have. And the arms may represent the two nations coming together. It's here in the the... the, the The kingdom of the Medes and Persians that Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus the Persian would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. And they did. Remember the Babylonian captivity was only going to last 70 years. And it did. And so they released many of the... That's not even a good word. Some of them go to Jerusalem. But we know from history that not most of them go back to Jerusalem. And it takes years to rebuild the wall. That's what Nehemiah is writing to us about. And then they want to rebuild the temple. And it takes years to rebuild the temple. And remember, they weep at the dedication of the second temple because they remember the glory of the first. And we get Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This is all during the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire. But the city, Jerusalem, under the Medes and Persians was not half of what it was. The temple didn't scratch the, the surface of the glory of Solomon's temple. And remember that they, they're they're not free. They're not they're not independent. Remember in Esther's day, Haman says, Look, we're gonna kill all the Jews, and the king says, Okay. They're still under the hand of foreign leadership and they're still under the hand of oppression in the Medes and Persians. But the people of that day, that generation still looked back to this word and they settled their souls because they remembered that there is a rock that's not cut with human hands. That one day will be hurled from God's mountain and will destroy all evidence of their oppressor. And the next kingdom to come is the Macedonian kingdom is Greece. The empire that thrives under Alexander, the text says that the the belly and the thighs of the statue of this idol were bronze. I love what John Calvin writes. He says, it's frivolous to notice that politeness, which has gained Alexander the Great favor with historians, since if we reflected upon his natural character, he surely breathed cruelty from his very boyhood. Do we not discern in him when quite a boy, envy and emulation... When he saw his father victorious in war and subduing by industry or depraved arts the cities of Greece, he wept with envy because his father left him nothing to conquer. We know he wept when he heard from imaginative philosophy that there were more worlds to conquer. And he said this, I don't even possess one world. Calvin says, Alexander the Great never spared the blood of anyone. Whenever he burst forth like a devouring tempest, he destroyed everything. And Greece was exporting their culture to the ends of the earth. And even Jewish families, we know this from history, even Jews are starting to learn Greek. He fills the land with idols, temples, Greece will, and the exaltation of sexuality. And they seemed utterly unstoppable. And still Jerusalem wasn't free. But even in this age, there was a sure word given through Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that there is a rock that is not cut with human hands that will one day be hurled from God's mountain to remove every trace of their oppressor. And we could work towards Rome, the legs of iron, feet meddled with clay. 170 BC, according to Jerome. Antiochus set up an image of Jupiter Olympus on the temple grounds. And Josephus records that he built a pagan altar. Some say that they worshiped Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem. And they sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple of Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple. Antiochus tried to outlaw Judaism in all of Judea. This led to the Maccabean Revolt. And in the Maccabean Revolt... Israel has this moment of liberty. They have some years where they feel like they have independence only to have Rome come knocking on their door a few years later and declaring themselves Lord over the region. And remember by Jesus' day, Herod and Rome, they order the massacre of every child under the age of two. And that feels a lot like Egypt. Egypt. That feels a lot like Moses. That doesn't feel like freedom when a false empire, an empire can say to you, we're going to kill all your baby boys because we don't want anyone to rise up and lead you. That doesn't feel like freedom. That feels like oppression. But they have this hope, and and you can see this in history. They have this hope that there's a rock that is not cut with human hands that will be hurled from God's mountain to remove every trace of their oppressor. And that rock, it says, will come in this time. So what did God tell the nations through this dream? That there were oppressors to come. There would be generations of oppression. More empires to rise. More conflict to meet. But the people of God should take heart and breathe because a rock was about to be hurled from God's mountain. So quickly, I want to just draw a few points from the idea of this rock that is hurled, destroys the idol and the pieces are blown away like chaff in the wind. First, notice the timing of the coming rock. The timing, it, 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 the text says that it'll the rock will come in the day of these kings of the Roman Empire, of the last empire. 600 years before Christ, Daniel prophesied that there will be four major empires that come to the earth. And during the fourth major empire, the rock would be hurled from heaven, a rock that's not like others not cut with human hands a specific rock will be hurled from heaven to destroy this spiritual idol this spiritual arrogance that filled these kingdoms and it's fulfilled prophecy the rock did come the rock was hurled from heaven god put on flesh then i want to just talk for a moment about the, the nature of the coming kingdom he says it's not cut with human hands St. Augustine understood this to refer to the virgin birth, and, and maybe it does refer to some extent to the virgin birth. But it's clear that the characteristics of this coming kingdom are not like, and they are not compatible with the characteristics of these empires. Listen to me for a second. The rock that comes is opposed to the spirit of the idol. It's not consistent with the spirit of the idol. The the Jews of the day, many of them, were looking for a conqueror to outconquer the conquerors, and that's not what God was going to do. It's opposed to the spirit of the idol. It demolishes the spirit of the idol. So we find in Nebuchadnezzar um, extreme pride, but in Jesus we find extreme humility, lowness, and meekness. Alexander is greedy, but Jesus just keeps on giving. They plunder the nations, the rich and poor alike. They destroy their homes, leave them utterly broken. Jesus takes just a few fish and a few loaves of bread and feeds the multitudes. They advance their empires through ripping families apart. And Jesus advances his empire through bringing reconciliation, through forgiveness and through mercy. No, he's not like the idol. They oppress nations. Jesus liberates nations. They are the definition of narcissism. Jesus is compassion. They conquer through violence. Jesus conquers through suffering violence. They're bloodthirsty. Set on spilling the blood of the nations, Jesus will spill his own blood for all of humanity. Jesus wages war against all of hell through selflessness. He heals the sick, touches the leper, pauses for the Trodden listens, wait, extends grace. He loves, he teaches us holiness, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to live it. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 will erect this big gold idol of himself and tell the nation of the earth, bow down to me. Jesus will call, crawl on the cross of Calvary, allow broken sinful people to spit in his face, receive nails in the palm of his hands and allow them to erect him up. Nebuchadnezzar declares, serve me. And Jesus declares, I really love you. His kingdom is not like the spirit of this idol. Nebuchadnezzar, look upon my greatness. Jesus, look upon my sacrificial love for the nations. And lastly, notice the spread of this kingdom. The rock becomes a great mountain that will fill the earth. And you and I are wrapped up in this prophecy. We are a part of this rock growing into a great mountain that fills the earth. But we are not oppressors. We are not in line with the spirit of this idol. We are liberators. We don't walk in bitterness. We walk in mercy and forgiveness. We don't dominate but we love and inspire and encourage. We don't it's, it's not in our nature to belittle. It's in our nature to, with the eyes of God, see the greatness in people and call it out. It's not in our nature, even in our day and age, to hate and to throw stones. It's in our nature to encourage and to love. And yes, to walk in a spirit of honesty, but to yoke it with a spirit of grace. The scripture says that Jesus came in the spirit of grace and truth. We are not in alignment with that idol. We are opposed to it. We are a part of the kingdom filling the entire earth. And we are awaiting the day when our Lord will ultimately conquer all of his enemies. But he will not conquer all of his enemies without first offering grace to the nations. So in conclusion, I just want to say this quickly. The people of God, Daniel and is prophesying through nebuchadnezzar's dream is releasing the interpretation of god's word the people of god would for centuries to come for generations to come they would suffer oppression they would have unfulfilled expectation but god spoke through this dream and reminded those babylonian captives and the entire empire that there is a rock that is coming that will be hurled from heaven And when their children saw the temple restored and they wept because it was nothing like Solomon's temple. I think they reminded themselves that there's a rock coming, man. There is a word, there's a sure word that didn't come from another lying, rambling prophet. There's a sure word that there is a rock coming to obliterate our oppressors. And then in the days of the Greeks, with all their false worship and all of their success, and when they seemed unstoppable while they lived in open sin, they reminded themselves. The people of God spoke to themselves. There is a rock coming. And when Rome desecrated their temple, they remembered that there is a coming rock. And we pronounce liberty to generations because that rock has come. Because the rock has now come, we look back and we declare the defeat of this great idol. We say to darkness, you must go as the light of the gospel is proclaimed to all the earth. So when my kids live in fear of man, when they come to me insecure, fear of what other people think when they feel like they have to compete, when they feel insufficient, I'm allowed to remind them that there was a rock man that destroyed that spirit, that destroyed that that need to strive for approval. He destroyed it with freely given love. And when your neighbors find themselves driven by a need to gain more, to have more stuff. If I could have more stuff then people would know how successful I am. You guys realize we do that when we buy houses. We want a big house so that people think we're successful. You're allowed to remind your neighbor in that situation that there's a rock that has come that has destroyed that spirit that needs to be seen as successful and if you would put your rest in that rock, you ain't gotta work or strive. You can just receive free love because his spirit is not like the spirit of the idol and when we see one another and we will see one another slip into the subtle deception of thinking that the world revolves around me and that the world revolves around my needs being met you remind me that there is a rock that has come that has destroyed the spirit of selfishness And he destroyed that kind of self-centered thinking with the ultimate display of sacrificial love. And he defeated death and sin and the grave. And as they put him up on the cross, he erected his own image and his own image was the perfect love of God shed on the cross of Calvary. His own image was God with flesh on with nails in his hand and a hole in his side and a crown of thorns on his head, weeping and spilling blood. His own image was the perfect love of God offered freely for all the nations. Now, Nebuchadnezzar will say, you serve me and look at my greatness. And Jesus will say, I will serve you. And I'll love you, even though you're undeserving. That's the God we serve. And that's the spirit of the kingdom of the rock. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit Christian Renewal, for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.